Now here we are, Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Let's pray as we begin our time seeking the Lord this morning, evening. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful that you are giving us the privilege to walk alongside the disciples and to hear our Lord and Savior speak to them. We thank you, Lord, that, that what you have given us is understandable. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear the deeper meaning of what's here. Help us to see Jesus clearly for who he is in your word. In Christ's name, amen. Well, so far in Matthew's gospel, we've seen one really big major theme and several kind of subplots as we've sort of moved our way along. The big bright theme in Matthew's gospel is that all, is all this, this scripture-fulfilling evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. That could be our subtitle to Matthew's gospel. How Jesus fulfills the Old Testament promises of the long-awaited Messiah. That, that's what this book is about. It's the reason that Matthew wrote his gospel. It's the, it's the wind and the sails of this ship as it moves towards its destination. And if that's the, the wind pushing the gospel, there are also tides and there's currents that we have to be aware of. Things that Matthew wants us to see. Think of these as as subplots or sub-themes that have the potential to, to move us off our course. And one of the things that we've talked about, one of the subplots here, is this ongoing drama of who believes and who doesn't believe. Who responds to the arrival of the Messiah in faith and who rejects him? We've just seen evidence last week, the end of chapter 15, Evidence that even the nations 
are being blessed by the arrival of the Messiah. And they believe, and they worship Him. Meanwhile, the tide of people who don't believe is getting louder and stronger in their opposition, and in their pushing against Jesus' revelation of Himself as Messiah. And, and by, by us, I mean, that's the reader, our perspective. When we read Matthew's Gospel, we're, we're moving along with the disciples here. And I think one of the things that Matthew's doing for us in the way that he's written this gospel is he's letting us in on what's happening between Jesus and the disciples. We're like a fly on the wall or a 13th disciple following Jesus around. And the disciples are a group like most of us. I think we can identify them because, with them because they want to believe. Most of us who are gathered here tonight want to believe. So we're like the disciples in that regard. They desire to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but their understanding of what that means hasn't quite caught up yet, has it? They're getting it, but they haven't got it. Where we are now in our text is that the second feast with Jesus, that second major feeding, has just concluded, and now we know that the nations are being included in the kingdom of heaven. Further proof that Jesus is the Messiah. Right after that meal, Jesus and the disciples get into a boat, and they travel from the east side of the Sea of Galilee to a place called Magadan, or Dalmanutha, as Mark calls it in his gospel. And that doesn't really help us, because we don't know where either of those places are. Still don't know where they are. Our best guess from what we can tell from studies, is that this is somewhere on the east or the west side of the Sea of Galilee, the west side of the lake. So from wherever this is, Jesus and the disciples are going to travel north, and they're going to go from there, Magadan, up to Caesarea Philippi, and we'll get there next week. But wherever this is, we know that there are Pharisees there, and we know that there are Sadducees there. Because they come up to Jesus, Matthew says in verse 1, to test him. And by test, I think we've, we've seen by now that they're asking for a sign. They're, they're demanding a sign. And this has happened before, this, this sign-seeking business. It happened back in chapter 12, right around verse 38. Very similar circumstances. Now, now what kind of sign are these guys looking for? And, and what what do they want? What are they seeking this sign to prove? Back in chapter 12, I taught, I don't remember where we were at that point, uh, whether it was inside or I don't know, but it was back in chapter 12. I thought that what was happening there was these guys were looking for a sign that Jesus was the Messiah. I think I was wrong about that. I don't think that they were looking to see if Jesus was the Messiah. And here's why, because here in chapter 16, it's not just the Pharisees but also the Sadducees, who were also testing Jesus. The Sadducees, you see, didn't believe that there was a Messiah. They had no expectation of a coming Messiah. So they're not testing to see if he's the Messiah because they don't believe there is one. So for the Sadducees to be looking for a sign along with the Pharisees, the way that they pose this question is more consistent with how one might test a prophet in the Old Testament. Show me that you're really a prophet. Show me that you're really of God. 
So they're asking a far more basic question than, are you Jesus the Messiah? They're asking, are you representing God at all? Are you from God? And if you are, prove it. Look again at verse 1. Matthew chapter 16, verse 1. The Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. In other words, show us a magic trick so powerful and so persuasive that I have to believe that you're really of God, you're divine, you're from God. Now think about this, just kind of think about what they're asking him. Do you think if Jesus could actually pull that big of a rabbit out of his hat, would these guys actually believe that he's from heaven? Think, it, think in your own experience. Think about someone you know that you're trying to persuade of the truth of the gospel. What do they need to see in order to be persuaded? If you had this power of worldwide healing, and you can make all the COVID infections everywhere go away, would that convince the person that you're talking to that Jesus Christ is Lord over all creation and that in his death he took upon himself the wrath of God meant for you and I so that we could become citizens of God's kingdom? Think of that giant leap in logic. Would that miracle persuade them? Miracles have limits, don't they? I heard a story of a missionary trying to persuade a Hindu of the reality of the gospel. And they kind of got to this point where they're talking about the resurrection of Christ, and they get stuck. And so they spend all evening arguing back and forth about whether or not Jesus could have or did actually rise from the dead. Eventually, the missionary wins out. And the man says, I'm persuaded. You have taken away all my objections of the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. I believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead. And, and if you're that missionary, what are you thinking? I got him, right? I, I've got him. And, and now you're going to follow Christ. And the man says, no. See, we have lots of stories of resurrections in Hinduism. And that's it. The reality of the miracle didn't persuade this man to follow Christ. See, that's not what miracles are for. These these Pharisees and the Sadducees have seen miracles from Jesus. But those were not enough for them. The kind of sign that they're looking for is really just another excuse For them to say, oh, look, see, because of the way Jesus did that, that proves he's demonic. Or look, see, the way he did that, he's a charlatan. He's playing everybody. Or he's a revolutionary. He's trying to overthrow the government. They are not going to believe no matter what Jesus does in front of them. They're not going to believe because they cannot believe. See, these men need to be persuaded of far more than the mere fact that Jesus is a prophet sent from heaven. They need to be persuaded that the age of the Messiah has arrived and Jesus is that Messiah. He's the Son of God. He's Lord over all. And being persuaded that Jesus is Messiah 
is a lot more than being persuaded that miracles are possible. Being persuaded that Jesus is Messiah means believing he is Lord and you're not. And that takes more than a visible sign from heaven. It takes being born again and having your eyes opened to the truth of who Christ is. For these men to ask for a sign from heaven is like someone who's been blindfolded their entire life. So they're born, you put a blindfold over their eyes immediately. When they grow up, they learn the language, but they've never seen anything. They can't see anything. And they ask you to prove to them that the grass is green. Show me a sign that the grass is green. Prove it to me. They've got a blindfold on. They've always had the blindfold on. They can't see anything. What does it even mean to ask you to prove to them that the grass is green? It's nonsense, isn't it? And Jesus, knowing full well the state of the blindness of the scribes, or rather the Sadducees and the Pharisees, he answers accordingly. He starts with this weather analogy, which seems kind of out of place for us. But you should know here, just a little help to see why Jesus is answering this way, there's a play on words going on in the Greek. All right, The Greek word for sky and the Greek word for heaven are the same word. They don't have two words the way that we do. So, so when they say in verse 1, show us a sign from heaven, we know from context that what they mean is that place where God dwells, not that place where the clouds are. But Jesus takes advantage of the ambiguity here, and he turns it back on them. He says, oh, oh you want to see a sign from heaven? How about red at night, sailors delight? Red in the morning, sailors take warning. There's a sign from the sky for you, from the heavens for you. And you guys already know how to read those signs. A sign written in the sky isn't what you need. You need to be given sight to see the signs of the times. You need to be able to see that all that I've done up to this point, I'm speaking as Jesus here, all that I've done up to this point points to the fact that I'm the Messiah. The age of the Messiah has arrived. You can't see that. Look at the end of verse 3. You cannot interpret the signs of the times. He's saying you're blind to what's going on. So there's no sign that I can show you that will help you. They can't see that Scripture is being fulfilled right in front of them. Now before we move on to Jesus' next statement, we need to do a little review. This is something that we've seen happening in Matthew's gospel, but I, I want to bring it to your attention. So I hope you still have your Bibles open. I want you to turn back to Matthew chapter 11, just a few chapters ago. And remember, if you were hearing this for the first time, if you were going through Matthew's gospel, you would have heard it all in one reading. So the way that we've broken it all up and explained here and there, that would have been really unusual for the people who first had access to Matthew's gospel. They would have just sat and listened to someone read the entire thing. So when I take you back to Matthew 11, this would have been just like 10 minutes ago for them. Matthew chapter 11, verse 25 and 26. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. 
Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. So Jesus has already taught us that it is the Father's gracious will that some will have the, the reality of the Messiah revealed to them and some will have it hidden from them. All right? So just remember that that's a part of what Jesus has been teaching us. And we saw this with the parables too. We go a, a, a couple chapters after that, Matthew chapter 13. So turn to Matthew 13, verses 10 through 15. I'm going to read that as well. This is Jesus speaking, or Matthew sharing with us what Jesus is about to say. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you, the disciples, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. Take note of that word, perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. And next week, we're going to see the same thing. Spoiler alert, Peter is going to confess that Jesus is the Messiah. In our next section, in chapter 16, he's going to say he's the Messiah, Son of the living God. And Jesus, in response to Peter's confession, is going to say this. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. That's Matthew 16, verse 17. So if we're tracing Jesus' teaching through Matthew's gospel, who believes? Who has faith? Well, those to whom God has revealed Messiah to. They are the ones who believe. They're the ones with faith. By the grace of God, they see the signs as pointing to the arrival of Messiah and the kingdom of heaven. And on the other hand, who doesn't believe? Well, taking Jesus' word for it, those whom God has not revealed Messiah to. Those are the people who don't believe. That's why Jesus says to the Pharisees and Sadducees here, you cannot interpret the signs of the times. They're incapable. They can't understand the parables. They can't understand the miracles that they've seen. They can't understand any of Jesus' teaching. They can't see what's clearly happening because God hasn't revealed it to them the way that he's revealed it to the Gentiles and the disciples who trust and obey and believe. So another sign from Jesus isn't going to change that reality. See, listen, the signs aren't meant to persuade people who are on the fence. That's not how they work. The signs are God-glorifying, Scripture-fulfilling evidences that God is faithful to His promises. They're meant to give us confidence in the truth that God has revealed in our hearts. And if you want evidence for this, think, ask yourself this, when did the disciples begin to follow Jesus? After they saw signs? Signs? 
No. The disciples began to follow Jesus not because they saw signs, but because Jesus called them. The signs helped them to see that Jesus was fulfilling Scripture. Well, in response to the sign-seeking of these religious leaders, Jesus says the exact same thing that we saw happen back in chapter 12. He quotes, An evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. If you remember from back in chapter 12, when he calls them evil and adulterous, that's not accidental there. He's saying they're not of God. And in fact, by using the word adulterous, he's saying they are worshiping another God. For God's covenant people, remember these are the religious leaders of Judaism. For for God's covenant people to be adulterous means that they have broken their their marriage-like covenant with the Lord and they are chasing after other gods. So Jesus is really, he's really nailing them here. He's not mincing words. He's saying you don't belong to God. You're not his children. You're not his bride. You belong to some other gods, false gods. Now contrast that, what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees and Sadducees there, to the Gentiles from last week. Remember the Canaanite woman? the ancient enemy of God? What did she do in response to Jesus? She fell down on her face before Jesus. She calls him Lord. She asks for his help and claims for herself the ancient promise of the coming Messiah. And then there were those people that Jesus healed on the mountainside. They fell down and worshiped the God of Israel. God has revealed himself to him, himself to them rather, God has revealed himself to them in Jesus, and he's bringing them in to the kingdom, the kingdom of the Messiah. But these Jewish leaders, they have the scriptures, they have the pedigree, they have the promises, they know the law, they have every advantage over the Gentiles, every human advantage, but they can't see Jesus for who he is. And so they don't worship him. That's why Jesus says no sign will be given to them except the sign of Jonah. Now that's confusing, isn't it? What's the sign of Jonah? Well, let me remind you, in in Matthew 12, in Matthew 12, Jesus told us that the sign of Jonah has two parts. Okay? Remember what happened to Jonah? He, He got swallowed by fish and spit up. On, on the shore after being three days in the belly of the fish, that's the first part of the sign. That would cause us to look forward to Christ being in the ground for three days or in the grave for three days and then resurrected. So that's the first part of the sign of Jonah. But the second part is particularly relevant to our text. Remember, he was in that fish because he didn't want to go to the Gentiles, the undeserving nations. But then he loses his battle with God, as one does, and he goes to Nineveh, and he preaches God's message. And they repent. And what happens? God is merciful. On who? The nations. And now Jesus 
has gone into the nations. And he's fulfilled the promise that the gospel would be for the nations as well as Israel. And the nations have received him as Lord and they've worshipped him as God. Exactly like the Ninevites did. You see how the sign of Jonah has been fulfilled there? In other words, you want a sign, Pharisees and Sadducees? Go talk to the Canaanite woman who God revealed Messiah to. Go talk to the Gentile crowds who were healed and fed by Jesus. All those people are living testimonies of the sign of Jonah. The mercy of God has gone to the nations. And with that, Jesus leaves. He leaves these Pharisees and Sadducees there. He won't talk to any more religious leaders in Galilee. We're at a major transition now in Matthew's gospel. We are about to begin our journey towards Jerusalem. Not quite, but almost. This is the end, or the the beginning of the end, of the season in Galilee. When we we get down to Judea and Jesus making his way to Jerusalem, we're going to see lots more confrontations with religious leaders. But no more in Galilee. So let's go on to our next section. This starts in verse 5. You kind of see what's happening there? Jesus is basically rejecting the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they're rejecting him. Now we get to verse 5. And, and what's going to happen here is, is the disciples are trying to understand what's just happened, sort of. Um, they're, they're a little aloof, as we see. And le- this section is kind of hard to follow. And I'm going to summarize it for you as best I can. So, so Jesus and the disciples have gone away from the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And Jesus, remember, he's always teaching the disciples. He wants to bring the point home. He wants to explain to them what has just happened. And so he says, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, we know, as astute readers of the Bible, that Jesus isn't talking about bread. He's not talking about yeast or sourdough starter. Those of us who are familiar with the Bible know this because we've read Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, where he tells the Corinthian church, beware, a little leavening goes through the whole loaf. It spreads through the whole church and it causes problems. And we knew there he's not talking about leavening. And then we also know that Paul says the same thing to the Galatians, warning them of false teaching. Beware, a little leavening goes through the whole loaf. We're kind of used to this idea that bread doesn't always mean bread. Leavening doesn't always mean leavening. That Scripture is often using symbolic language. But the disciples, they're hungry. Okay, they're literally hungry. They've been traveling around, they're tired, they're hungry, and all of a sudden, as soon as Jesus mentions leavening, they realize, you know, we forgot to bring bread. And it's kind of humorous, and I think that's intentional. Reminds me of the time when the kids were all really little, much smaller than they are now, and we were going on a trip, a five-hour drive, big family Christmas trip to meet, to meet the rest of my family in the mountains. And I had spent all day that, that day putting a roof on our garage, and I had to because it was sleeting. Susan was at work, working one of her 12-hour hospital shifts, the kids I don't know what the kids did when we were doing those things, but, <laughs> but they're all still alive. <laughs> they, they all learned how to babysit. Luke was 
three, two, really little. Anyway, somehow we managed at the end of the afternoon, it got dark, we managed to pack the kids in the car, get all the baby stuff in the car, we're all totally exhausted. It's getting close to midnight as we're driving along the road, we're, we're three hours into our trip, and I just realized I left the Christmas presents. So all those Christmas presents that, I, that we had wrapped and packed and had them in a laundry basket right by the door, left them at the house. And I, I think that's kind of the moment that the disciples are, are having, one of those, oh, I forgot presents, I forgot the bread. That's sort of the moment they're experiencing. Jesus is trying to teach them something really important that they're going to need in their continued ministry. Jesus knows he's leaving one day. And so he's getting all the teaching time in with these guys that he that he can. And this is really important, really crucial moment. He wants to have this huge impact on their future ministries. And they're like, you know, speaking of leavening, we forgot to pack bread. And Jesus hears this. And you can kind of imagine the sigh, can't you? That the eye roll, he realizes they're not picking up what I'm putting down. They're not really even paying attention to me. And so now for the third time, Jesus tells them, oh, you of little faith. He's going to say this a couple more times, but this is the third time that he's had to tell them this. And remember, he's just told the Canaanite woman that she has, what kind of faith? Great faith. All right, so notice that contrast. And there's two levels to what Jesus is about to tell them. He's asking them, you know, why are you thinking about bread at this moment? There's two levels. The first is straightforward. Because I'm, I'm trying to figure out, why does Jesus say they have little faith? All they are is looking, they're just looking for bread. What does that have to do with faith? Well, on the one hand, Jesus has just done two major miraculous feedings, hasn't he? He fed 4,000 people, and before that, he fed 5,000 people. They don't realize yet that at any moment, Jesus can create food. And they're worried about bread. It's like, guys, don't you get it? I, I can provide bread for you. That's the surface level of the faithless, faithlessness that they have. But deeper than that, and I think this is the greater point, I hope you have your Bible, look at verses 9 and 10. Look at the question that Jesus asks them. He says, do you not yet perceive he wants them to see something deeper. Perception is having the eyes to see what's really going on. And so he's asking them, do you not yet perceive? In other words, do you see everything that's happened in the last week and what this all points to? And then he specifically brings up the 5,000 Jews being fed and asks, do you remember how many baskets were picked up? Remember? 12 baskets. And then he says, and do you remember the 4,000 people who were fed? And how many baskets were picked up? Seven, right? Jesus is, is drawing our eyes in to those numbers. Twelve, Israel. Seven, fulfillment. How do we know that those numbers are important? Because Jesus says those numbers are important. Jesus wants these guys to see that those miracles are about more than bread. They're about his provision as Messiah. And so when he says, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he's still not talking about bread. He wants them to have perception. 
their teaching is contrary to my teaching. I'm the bread of life. I'm the Messiah. The Pharisees and Sadducees do not provide what I can provide for you. In fact, they will lead you away from God. So look at verse 12. Ah, aha, light bulb. Then they realized. Then they realized. He's not talking about bread. He's not talking about leavening. When Jesus says leavening, he's talking about teaching. Well, now that we know what's going on here, we need to take seriously Jesus' warning. Right? We don't just say, okay, now we know what it means, and we walk away. Jesus is giving a very real warning. So what is it? What are these teachings we have to watch out for? Well, what do we know about the teaching of the Pharisees? Why should we and the disciples beware of this teaching? So far, we know two things. As we've read Matthew's gospel, we know two things about the teaching of the Pharisees. They're opposed to Jesus, that's one. They're hypocritical, that's two. And and actually, there's one more that we need to see. The Pharisees are known for their way of nitpicking the law, lawyering the law. And I think that's what Jesus is getting at here. He doesn't want his disciples to be hypocrites, but he also doesn't want them to treat God's law as if it can be lawyered as if you could find these legal loopholes. Think about Jesus' teaching on divorce back in the Sermon on the Mount, way back in chapter 5. The Pharisees are asking that question, where's my legal loophole? How can I get a divorce and still be righteous? And Jesus, countered that, is asking, what is God's design for marriage? See the difference? Or think about another example, the one that we had in our last chapter. Jesus says, honor your father and mother as God commanded. And the Pharisees are looking for technicalities, aren't they? They're looking for technicalities in the language that lets them off the hook so they can keep their money and not have to provide for their mother and father. See the difference? It's like asking, what words am I allowed to say? How how cruel of words... How vulgar of words can I say and not be found guilty under under the law? Versus, the Jesus way, how can I use my speech to honor God? You see the difference? How can I game the system to make the most amount of profit without breaking the law versus how can I be generous towards others? It's like asking, should I tithe before taxes or after taxes versus how can I be generous towards God? How can, I be, how can I appear to be friendly to this person whose guts I hate? And I'm not pointing to anybody here. To this person whose guts I hate. Sorry. <laughs> I love you. <laughs> Versus how can I show mercy and love and forgiveness to this person because God has shown me mercy? Ultimately, The way in the teaching of the Pharisees versus the way in the teaching of Christ comes down to this outward, visible works versus a heart of faith. And this leavening that Jesus is warning them of will come up over and over and over again just in the lives of the disciples. Peter 
is going to be accused of falling prey to this teaching. Rightly accused. The Galatian church is going to deal with this teaching, this leavening of the Pharisees. The Colossian church is going to have to deal with this leavening. The church in Rome, even today, hasn't been able to escape this ancient temptation. And how about the Sadducees? So that's, that's the Pharisees. What about the Sadducees? What were they teaching? Well, there's not much in the Bible that tells us what the Sadducees taught. Now, the disciples knew what the Sadducees taught. They were, they were a major group, a major uh, group of Jews during that time. The disciples knew what they taught. Matthew knew what they taught. Matthew's first century readers knew what the teachings of the Sadducees were. But we don't. We have to do a little bit of historical work to find out. And, and I've done that work for you, so you don't have to do it. But if you want to, you can read Josephus. Uh, Josephus has written extensively on this. He's a historian from the first century. And so he writes about these groups, and he tells us what the Sadducees believed. And here's the best of what we can figure. All right, where the Pharisees thought that God would bless them if they strictly obeyed the law, the Sadducees saw their friendship with the world and wealth and world governments as their strength. So essentially, these, these guys are looking to see Israel made strong, not through God's divine interaction through history, but through their own political maneuvering. The Sadducees were buddied up with Herod, who was at this point in history very friendly with Rome. The relationship between the Sadducees and, and Herod, in fact, is so strong that if you read Mark's gospel, at this point, he doesn't say, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. See, the Sadducees and Herod were in cahoots. The Sadducees, we understand from history, were willing to compromise in all sorts of areas of their faith so that Rome would approve of them and let them continue in their way, on their way, and continue in peace. Not surprisingly, the Sadducees belonged mostly, not entirely, but mostly to the upper class, the wealthy class, the ruling class in Israel. They were a wealthy and worldly people focused on the world's ways of winning. They saw human free will and the strength of their own politics and political allies as the way forward for the Jewish people. So I'm not trying to compare them to any group today. But that gives you a sense of, of where they were politically then and who they were as Jews. So how, how does that way of thinking creep into the church? How do we protect the church from that mode of thinking? What do we need to be aware of? Well, we'll put it this way. Any way that we as a church, or the church in general, any way that we are making friends with the world when we should instead be standing firm on the gospel, that's modern-day Sadduceeism. It's a new word, Sadduceeism. Think, think of what Jesus' brother James says. He gives us this warning in James chapter 4. He says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And then Jesus 
teaches us in John 15, if we're loved by the world, which is what the Sadducees wanted, if we're loved by the world, it's a sign that we are of the world. But if we're of God, if we're faithful to God, if we're seeking God's approval above all else, the world will hate us. John teaches us in 1 John chapter 2, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. So then we have to ask, where are we like the Sadducees? Where are we so quick or too quick to cozy up with the world? Well, there's a lot of ways, aren't there? Trying to get the world's approval of our response to COVID or politics or finances or education or family or race or sexuality. That's all looking for the world's approval when we should instead be looking for the Lord's approval. Allowing the government to dictate what we teach and how we worship. That's exactly what the Sadducees were doing. We need to avoid that. Using the world's ways, worldly methods to get people to come join us or to like us, whether that's through promoting consumerism in the church or materialism in the church, avoiding teaching the harder doctrines of Scripture, trying to be relevant in the world's eyes. Whatever it is, essentially whenever we alter our message and our identity in order to be at peace with the world, that is the spirit behind the teaching of the Sadducees. And so Jesus is telling us today, in 2020, beware. Beware. Beware of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Beware of trusting in a self-reliant, worldly religiosity, on the one hand, Phariseeism. And beware of trusting in worldly ways and worldly power, on the other hand, Sadduceeism. Instead, here's the corrective. This isn't all negative, right? Here's the corrective. Instead, recognize who Jesus is. Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior of the Jews and the Gentiles. That means he is Lord over all the earth. That means he's Lord over you, and he's Lord over me. That means our righteousness is in him. Our right standing before God is in him. Our obedience to God is in him. Our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom that is forever, as we sang, that is found only in Christ. All of who we are is to be found in him. All of what we value and prioritize is to be found in Him. Our strength is not in ourselves as the Pharisees. And our strength is not in the world or in the world's ways as the Sadducees. Our strength is in Christ alone. Amen? Isaiah 12, 2, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have revealed to us as little children 
the Christ. Lord, I thank you that every, every time I begin to stray from that reality, every time I begin to doubt, you draw me back by your spirit and by your word, and you give me confidence that Jesus is my Lord. Father, I thank you for that. 